If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What would have happened if Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt had all been assassinated at the height of the Second World War? A new book by Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch explores a little-known Nazi plot that could have resulted in just that. But the facts of the matter remain contested. While some regard it as a close call that could have changed the course of the war, others see the story as one of the greatest scams of the conflict. Brad and Josh joined Eleanor Evans recently to dive into these murky events that centred on the 1943 Tehran summit. It's lovely to be talking with you both again. You've written together about assassination attempts on presidents before, a secret plot to kill George Washington and uh, one on Abraham Lincoln, which we talked about last time. And, And Brad, if we can start with you, I wonder if you can tell me a little more about what brought you to this particular episode we're talking about today. You know, the the actual answer is I saw an online article about it. And the moment I read it, I said, oh, my gosh, the Nazis wanted to kill Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the height of World War II. I mean, that, that was all it took. That sent me down the rabbit hole. But 
truthfully, as we got deeper, it just, you know, that onion just kept peeling and peeling and peeling away. But talk about one of the few times when surfing the internet, something good came from it. And uh, I happened to see this article and just and just started diving in. I can see why it's a remarkable episode. And Josh, was it similar for you? It was similar. Uh, it was, uh, you know, one of these things we've all learned about World War II. We've studied it in school. Brad and I have both done other projects related to World War II. Neither one of us had really heard this story before. And it's so dramatic. And the first question is, why don't we already know about this? And it turns out when you start looking into it, it's very complex. There are a lot of competing narratives, but that just made it kind of more exciting for us to try to unpack what really happened and sort through all the different theories and some of the misinformation that's out there about it, rumors, uh, whatnot, and and come at you know, w- what we believe was a pretty accurate depiction of it. By telling this story, it's a great excuse to delve into one of the most fascinating periods in American history. And we just kind of took it from there. And it was such a fun story. I'm sure. Right. Well, it's complex. It's murky, as you've alluded to, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those complexities shortly. But if we can go to 1943, I know you obviously cover a lot of ground around that year, but specifically in 1943, what is the situation that the so-called big three find themselves in? Can you situate our listeners a bit there? We start in November 28th, 1943, and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt Uh, is in Tehran, Iran, of all places. And everyone is waving at this motorcade that's driving through the streets and people are cheering. Everyone wants to crane their necks and get a good look at the president of the United States in this foreign land. And what's really happening, though, is the person inside that motorcade is not Franklin Delano Roosevelt at all. FDR is actually in a different car on another part of the city, racing through the city streets, ducked down and hiding in the back of this car, following a Jeep as it races through the city, because what they're trying to do is make sure that they can get him to the equivalent of the Russian embassy before anyone kills him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy, but that's where we're set in terms of where the president is. I'll let Josh uh, maybe do the kind of bigger historical setting of, of where we are as well. Sure. So, so 1943 is an absolutely pivotal year in the war, and 1942 was largely very bad for the Allies. But by the end of the year, they had gathered together as as a team led by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin, these three unlikely allies who are fighting this massive global war against Nazi Germany and Japan and the other Axis powers. And the critical issue uh, was that Joseph Stalin really, really, really wanted the United States and, and Great Britain and the other Western allies to invade continental Europe. And until this point, the U.S. and Great Britain were were abstaining from doing that. They weren't ready to take on Hitler in Europe. They were attacking through southern Europe, but they weren't ready to try to hit France. And Stalin was getting increasingly frustrated and angry about that because uh, he was just getting blitzed in the Soviet Union. Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, and it was just the most brutal, devastating, horrific war in human history. And the Soviet Union was getting the worst of it, and they were just getting battered and battered and battered. And somehow they were still standing, but they really needed help. And at first, the help came in the form of armaments from uh, the United States and the United Kingdom with the famous Lend-Lease program. But what Stalin really wanted was for them to attack Hitler from the West 
so that the pressure would be taken off the Soviet Union. By doing that, Stalin really believed they could win this war. But Churchill wanted to delay. He wasn't ready to do it. And Roosevelt had promised Stalin multiple times that they were going to embark on this, and they kept delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. Stalin was getting increasingly frustrated. And 1943 comes along, and this is the critical year when either it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. And uh, it would be Roosevelt believed, Stalin believed, a chance to really turn the war around and get the upper hand. But they had to all get on the same page. They had to convince Churchill that it was the best plan. They had to figure out the timing. They had to figure out the strategy. How was it going to work? How many troops were involved? All the incredibly complicated logistics of this war. And to make it happen, Roosevelt realized that the only way was for them to meet in person. They had to meet face-to-face, Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt, both to personally convince uh, Churchill that it was the right move and to kind of all get on the same page, but also to show the entire world that they were working in unison. Uh, It was about morale as well as about strategy. And if they could all get together, it would be covered in the global press and it would be just this great show of power and strength and unity. uh, And it would deal a big blow to Nazi Germany uh, that they were all truly united in this war effort. So those were the stakes. The stakes kind of couldn't be any higher because the Axis powers were literally trying to take over the world and committing some of the most horrific acts of genocide and other atrocities in the history of the world. So the stakes could not be higher. This summit meeting had to happen. Roosevelt really believed it had to happen, and he had to kind of play the middleman between Stalin and Churchill, who did not like each other, to set up this uh, epic summit meeting in Tehran, their first ever face-to-face meeting. That's the kind of backdrop and the stakes. And then Nazi Germany learns about their intelligence services, learns that they're all going to be meeting and that these three leaders are going to be in the same place at the same time. And of course, that uh, provides them an opportunity to do something uh, that could, uh, from their point of view, also change the course of the war. As Brad mentioned, you've got this striking opening, which has Roosevelt in the back of a car in Tehran. And let's backtrack a bit for a second. Why Tehran? Why were they in Iran? What were the interests there at this stage during the war? Well, one of them is simply it's the only place they can agree on. When this starts, as Josh said, there's all these negotiations that are going back and forth. Where should we meet? When they first do it and and pick a spot, FDR literally says, get me a map and takes a map and draws out what's the equidistant part from the United Kingdom, from the Soviet Union, from the United States, where should we all meet? And Stalin says, I can't do that. And then they pick another spot. How about Alaska? Can't do that. Pick another spot. How about this? Can't do that. Stalin, because he's just being decimated by the Nazi invasion, refuses to leave his country, realizes with the, you know, how many people are dying every single day there, that if he leaves, it could be a potential disaster. And I will say, you know, in the beginning of the research, I really wondered, was that a strategy move or was that, you know, and he was just a great strategist earning his name, the Man of Steel, or was it, you know, necessary? And when you see those parts of the Nazi conspiracy, where you see the decimation that's going on in the Soviet Union, I don't blame him. Uh, It would be kind of abandoning the ship. And so he really holds out. And eventually, Iran, of all places, is where they decide it's going, this meeting will take place. And, And it's obviously problematic, of course, for Churchill too, of course, for Roosevelt, I don't think to the extent that it is for Stalin. But in Roosevelt's case, you know, it's not like it is today where you just jump on Air Force One and you're there in a couple hours. Um, Back then, it's planes and trains and automobiles to get anywhere and boats. And 
it takes weeks. So if the president of the United States leaves the country at the time and legislation gets passed, he's not around to vote on it. And the Constitution says you got to be there to, to sign it into law. So it's creating these complications for everyone. But Iran really just eventually becomes the place because it's, it's, it's the one place they can all agree on. Right. And they all have a presence there as well, don't they? There's a railroad that's very pivotal strategically. And yeah, there are geopolitical interests there as well, right? Yes. And and it's an allied controlled country, but it had formerly been a German controlled country or a country that had a strong alliance with Germany. And then the allies had to sort of take it over because there was this incredibly important railroad that could connect waterways to the Soviet Union. So it was a key railroad in the in the Lend-Lease program where uh, the United States and Great Britain were sending supplies through this railroad. A very important part of the war strategy was maintaining that railroad. So there was a strong allied presence there. And that's partly why Stalin felt comfortable there, because they had been using this railroad and, and he felt it was a safe place. Now, what Stalin did didn't know initially, and what the other leaders didn't know, there was still an underground Nazi presence in the city of Tehran from back when they had control over it. And there was a pretty active sleeper cell. And we get into all the details of that uh, in our book. But there's this sort of team of Nazi agents, some of who had been there a long time, others who had more recently been parachuted in, because parachuting was the only way for Nazi Germany to get agents there. So they had set up this kind of paratrooper network where they're dropping agents outside of Tehran, and then they would come into the city and meet at the safe house with the other agents. So uh, there was this kind of active underground Nazi presence there that was collaborating with locals who were sort of on the Nazi side. So the Allies didn't really know about this, or they, the intelligence networks knew about it, but you know they still felt that Tehran was a safe place to go, and they didn't realize uh, what the Nazis were planning. So before we get into the fascinating cast of characters beyond the big three, I want to pick up on something you said, Brad, which was obviously it's, it's a big ask for the big three to get to this location. And for Roosevelt, it's even more so, isn't it? I mean, he was stricken with polio. He used a wheelchair. He had lots of extra considerations when he was traveling. How did that affect this this arrangement to, to be in Iran, to be in Tehran for this conference? You know, one of my favorite parts of the book is is watching them try to negotiate Roosevelt's physical movement. And and one of my favorite kind of stars of the book who really breaks out of the story is, is Mike Riley, who was put in charge of the Secret Service at the White House the day after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And from that moment on, he's by Roosevelt's side. And he's the one who has the responsibility for keeping this frail president safe during a time of war. And what's amazing to watch, you know, back then, Roosevelt wasn't seen when he gives his, you know, day in infamy speech. It's known in Washington he's in a wheelchair. People can see that, but the public doesn't know that. And so Riley's even responsible for physically picking up the president of the United States, cradling him in his arms and carrying him and putting him down in some places or, you know, making it look more like Roosevelt is is holding himself up. Obviously, during the speech, he's, he's looking like he's standing, even though he's just really using his arms to do it. And when they decide that they're going to pick Iran, you know, they say to Mike Riley, check it out. And Mike Riley is literally like, okay, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. You know, everything, it, we're so used to that kind of fast pace today, but Riley then jumping on planes and boats and, you know, and cars and trains to get to the place. And then he does all those in reverse and runs this kind of 
triangle of you know different places to to run around to come back and say okay it's great now let's go and um and to me it, it it's stunning to watch that what you really have to do to make this this work on a physical level beyond even the agreement or getting the big three to agree to anything Yes, that really stayed with me too. And Mike Riley was such a character in, in your book. He, he's really jumped off the page for me. To go back to what you were saying, Josh, about this sleeper cell in Iran, I wonder if we can zero in on another of your figures, Franz Mayer. He was one that's a really fascinating guy. Franz Mayer was an agent of the Nazi intelligence services, and he was sent to uh, Iran quite early in the war when Iran had a very favorable position towards, uh, towards Nazi Germany. And so he was there just as a kind of emissary to kind of do intelligence work in Tehran. But then when the Allies take over, uh, Franz Meyer has to go underground. And he basically, you know, goes underground. He wears disguises. Uh, he has to find local people to be his handlers and convince them to work with him. And he becomes this kind of underground agent. And Nazi Germany totally forgot about him. The intelligence services assumed that he was dead or, or in jail somewhere after the Allies took over. Little did they know that he was still active and he was still cultivating this kind of pro-Nazi underground in Tehran. And there were a number of citizens there who were not happy with the Allies because the Allies had basically just taken over their country and were not always so delicate about it. So there were people who were pro-Germany, pro-Axis in Tehran, and Meyer kind of collected this group around him, uh, including a woman that he was having an affair with or was in love with. And he was just operating there. And by this crazy, complicated system that I, I is too almost too complicated to explain, he eventually is able to send a signal back to Germany that he's still there and that he's still alive and he's still active and that he's still building this kind of underground movement that he hopes can sort of take over the country on behalf of Nazi Germany. And so when the intelligence services in Berlin learn that he's still there, they're totally surprised, totally shocked, but also thrilled because Iran has become this, this very important part of the war because of this railroad that goes through there. So suddenly they realize they have this great asset in Tehran, uh, this team. And once they reestablish connection to Meyer, they say, well, let's give him some support. So they start sending planes and paratroopers drop outside of Tehran and they come in and they meet up with Mayer and they become part of his group and they bring supplies and weapons and money and all the things that they need to kind of establish a stronger presence there. So that's the kind of backdrop of what's happening uh, that year in, uh, in Tehran. Suddenly there's this very active group of armed spies operating in Tehran. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. 
playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So Maya's reappearance really uh, gives another opportunity to Nazi Germany and its allies. Can we bring in an, yet another figure? Otto Skorzeny is another key figure here who is, again, elsewhere. How does he fit into all this? Otto Skorzeny is without a doubt the one person in the Nazi conspiracy who I could never take my eyes off of. He's just the kind of quote unquote best bad guy in the moment. And, and I mean that not in a good way, bad guy, but just everything he does seems almost like it's out of a movie. The great moment for Otto Skorzeny that you'll see in the book, which just is, it's incredible to read, is there's this moment in The Wolf Slayer. You're in Hitler's private headquarters now. And Hitler has brought all of his greatest warriors because he wants to choose the very best one. And he lines them all up. And Hitler asked one question of all of them. What do you think of Italy? And one by one, all the officers mumble their generic statements saying, you know, Italy is an Axis partner. And of course, they're on our side. And, you know, Italy is one of us. And, and Scorzeni has a completely different idea. And in that moment, he exclaims loudly, interrupting everyone else, I am Austrian, my Fuhrer, he says. And the room goes dead silent. And why does he make this statement? Because as everyone in the Reich knows, Hitler is also from Austria. And although Austria is now joined with unified Germany, Austria has its own distinct history. Because at the end of the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles granted a part of Austria, a favored part of Austria to Italy, and it infuriated native Austrians forever. So Italy now might be a close ally, but deep down, if you what you really think of Italy is they got they got a part of, of Austria that we want. And it's a complete gamble by Otto Skorzeny. And in that moment, Adolf Hitler looks at this guy, Otto Skorzeny, and realizes this is my guy. This is the man who I want to what eventually is picked to lead the craziest rescue mission that you I, I really think you're ever going to learn about. And it's the, the rescue of Mussolini, who has been captured and taken from power and is being hidden all over, and they don't know where he is. And Skorzeny is charged, and I, I won't ruin this part, because I think when you, when you read the book, I, I don't want to undo the best, best parts, but it, it you'll see that it involves hang gliders and Nazis and flying from the sky and crashing and an action scene that you would think is out of a Marvel movie. Um, but Otto Skorzeny plays this role and becomes Hitler's, you know, the, the guy that Adolf Hitler counts on for the wildest missions of all. And needless to say, 
Otto Skorzeny um, is about to take over and play this role in history that I, I never heard of his story. I didn't know of his story, but you'll never forget his story once you hear it and once you see. In fact, it was so, I should say this, when we found the story, and full credit to Josh, who, who put it in the book, I remember saying to Josh, do you have a picture of this moment? Because no one will believe it. And you'll see Otto Skorzeny in the big moment that I'm talking about. And we literally put the picture in the pages of the Nazi conspiracy so you could see for yourself him on that day. So you can realize, oh my gosh, this really happened. Yes, he's certainly a figure that looms large. So to bring our listeners up to date then, we've got the big three uh, meeting in Tehran. We have the uh, Nazi sleeper cell created around Franz Meyer and his team. They obviously are up against some challenges there. And then you have Otto Scorsese, um, who is singled out by Hitler as his man to get things done. All of these figures and stories coalesce uh, in a moment in 1943. And as you've mentioned already, it's a bit murky. It's very complex. How did you stitch together this this sort of sense of the plot as it happens in 1943? The best way in for us was to really see what happened when the Americans landed in Tehran. Um, and one of the first things that happens is a few members of the American team, most importantly, Mike Riley, who we mentioned earlier, the head of the Roosevelt Secret Service, uh, are speaking with their kind of Soviet counterparts in the Soviet intelligence services because they're all have the shared responsibility to uh, secure the city of Tehran for this enormous summit. So all the teams have to work together, the British and the U.S. and the Soviet teams. And Mike Riley's essentially his counterpart on the Soviet Union says, uh, hey, I hate to tell you this, but we have just learned that the Nazis are planning a big action during this summit. And quite frankly, we think the three leaders are in grave danger. And they don't just tell Mike Riley, uh, uh, some other folks on the Soviet side tell other U.S. Uh, officials who are there, including the ambassador. So they hear from multiple sources the exact same story, which is that the Soviets have captured some Nazi paratroopers and they have intelligence that they believe that the Nazi teams, Nazi agents, are planning to potentially assassinate one, two, or all three of the big three leaders while they are in Tehran during this summit, because they have learned about the summit. So, you know, the U.S. team, they get there, they've got about 24 hours to prepare for this, you know, incredibly important meeting in the middle of the war, and suddenly they hear this information. And there are quite thorough accounts from some of the Americans on what they heard and what they thought of it, and then the precautions they took in order to try to protect uh, not just, you know, their own president, Franklin Roosevelt, but also the other two leaders. And suddenly the three groups are all working together to try to uh, protect uh, protect the big three. And that's uh, why the Soviets convinced FDR to move from the American legation, it was called, it's kind of a form of an embassy, and cross the city right, you know, at the last minute, right before the summit is to begin and stay with this in the Soviet embassy instead, which was very close to the British embassy. And so they could all be kind of together in this very heavily guarded compound instead of Roosevelt crossing back and forth in a car every day through the middle of Tehran when there are these Nazi, potentially Nazi assassins uh, kind of waiting in the wings. 
So that was kind of where we start. <laughs> and from there, you try to unpack all of the, the Russian stories, uh, what we know about the German intelligence services, what we know about the sleeper cell in Tehran, and then the various accounts from people who were there about what they believe happened. And uh, it's very murky, as you said, uh, but it's no matter what, it's it's just fascinating to try to untangle it. And we believed at the end of the day that the Americans believed what the Soviets said, and the, the story was very compelling, and that they really did have very good reason to be worried about a potential assassination attempt uh, against the three Allied leaders, which would have been absolutely devastating uh, to the war effort. And Eleanor, the one thing I think is important to point out is, you know, when we did the, the book about the plot to kill George Washington, you have the basically um, records from American courts, from people who were captured, from people who were being tried, and we can read the transcripts. When we did the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln, you again have similar, and even now better, because it's so many years later, uh, accounts and letters and things that we can read from archives in the United States. This is the first story where what we're trying to figure out is what a foreign country is trying to do against Winston Churchill, what a foreign country is trying to do against President Roosevelt at the time. And you're trying to now comb through the archives and libraries and the accounts of Nazi Germany, which of course so many are destroyed and anyone at the time who was going to confess anything, if they did confess, would have been killed when they were being tried. And although there were our allies at the time, then the Soviet Union. And interestingly, what, what I found so fascinating as we were doing the research and as we were putting the book together is over and over realizing that here was Stalin as our ally in the war. And, and, and again, just to be clear, the Soviet Union started out on the side of the Germans, then switched sides, of course, when they were invaded and they were on our side. But as the Cold War came, Really, it's as Josh just explained, it's the Soviets who who kind of foil this plot, who come and say, you know, this is what we've heard. And you'd think that, you know, they should be celebrated for foiling this plot. But as the Cold War takes hold, we in the United States don't want to tell stories where the Russians are the heroes. That's not a good story for us. And so you watch as once again, history changes in terms of who did what and how it happened and who deserves the credit. Um, certainly the Soviet Union doesn't, you know, have any great love for us these days. And, and it's obviously fascinating to watch from when the Cold War ends and stories then leak out to then where we are now today with, of course, um, you know, back in a giant mess. But it, it's, it was so much harder to stitch together that account. And we, in the end, had to figure out, you know, one side believes that they were doing this. One side believes that the Russians were pulling on a hoax. And whatever you believe, either this was the greatest assassination plot to kill the big three, or the Russians pulled one of the greatest scams on Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt in history. And either way, we were like, this is an incredible story. To pull on that thread a little bit more, uh, because essentially the Russians then lured Roosevelt across the city. What what might have been their motives there? Why is this hoax, this idea that it could have been a hoax taken hold? Basically, it, it later comes out that the reason why Roosevelt, and I don't want to ruin everything in the book, but uh, the reason why the Russians said, Roosevelt, you should come and stay with us is because it's believed that they were bugging Roosevelt's room that they really told him that because they wanted to listen in on him. And obviously there are, are many good reasons to believe that, but there are just as many and probably even more to, 
you know, would Stalin really risk at this heightened moment where he needs everyone to come together and to, and to come in especially to save what's, um, all these people that are dying in the Soviet Union to do what he wants them to be done. Is that the time when you, when you risk all that? Maybe yes, maybe no, but, but that is what, um, some people who look at this, that's one of the things that they point out is that maybe, you know, was this all a scam or was by Russia or was this something that the Nazis were, you know, truly any a moment away from happening? And, and it's a, it is a question of who you believe. Do you believe the German, um, or do you believe the, the Russian account of it? And as always in history, depending on who you believe, we'll give you a different answer. It's a compelling question, and I'm sure readers who come to your book will be uh, will be fascinated by it. But it's no spoiler to say that all, all the big three do survive this conference in, in Tehran, and there's there aren't any successful assassinations at this point. How is it regarded then, Josh, in the aftermath of it? You know, the immediate aftermath, I suppose, and then what's its its legacy? You've already mentioned both of you how contested uh, ideas around it are. Yeah, so it's so interesting what happened. Roosevelt gave a press conference immediately upon his return from Tehran. And by this point, uh, they had kept the, the Tehran summit top secret until it was over. Uh, in terms of like the, the world press. Nazi Germany learned about it through their intelligence services, but most of the world only learned about it when it was over. And then suddenly there are photographs that were taken there and it becomes this kind of big PR event that the big three had met. And when, when Roosevelt first returns, you know, he's very happy with how, how it had gone. He gives a press conference and he tells the story that he had moved to the Soviet embassy because there were the Nazis were trying to kill him. And he, at this point, kind of enjoys telling the story and he gets kind of a kick out of it. But as soon as he he tells the story to the press, you know, the phone starts ringing and, and it causes a bit of an uproar. And some of the British uh, intelligence services who were in Tehran say, you you know, don't tell this story. We don't think uh, that there was really a plot. And it, it becomes a little sort of potentially embarrassing story. And so they all just sort of shut up about it. Uh, meanwhile, they're about to plan the most important military endeavor in history, which was to try to attack the Normandy beaches to finally, as Stalin always wanted, hit Nazi Germany in Western Europe across the English Channel. And so that's kind of more important at this point than sort of, you know, trying to figure out what really happened in Tehran. So all the focus immediately switches to, uh, you know, this incredibly complicated and incredibly important military endeavor. And they basically just forget about about it. And it was only after the war that people started kind of poking around and saying, well, geez, what really happened here? You know, why did FDR move uh, compounds at the last minute? And, uh, you know, are these rumors true? What happened? And people start digging around. And that's when these sort of different theories start emerging about what happened. And over the years, um, as Brad said, the Cold War colors the whole thing and, and people bring different agendas and interpretations to it. A movie gets made about it uh, that was totally sensationalized. Uh, some journalists write books about it, but the books are potentially a little bit dicey and perhaps uh, have some tall tales in them. And that information gets mixed in with the real stuff, and it becomes a very confusing history of what happened. And that was part of our challenge, was to sort of sift through uh, all these different accounts, all these different stories, the sensationalized versions of it, the very skeptical takes on it, and try to come up with a kind of balanced idea of what happened and, and what didn't happen. Uh, so over the years, it's the, the story of the plot after the plot is almost as fascinating as the plot itself. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting how it evolved over the over the decades. 
Agreed. It's a fascinating episode with a, with a remarkable legacy. Uh, and if I could perhaps finish on this one to you both, perhaps you first, Brad, what's the one thing you'd like listeners who are coming into this completely cold now to know about the mystery of this, this episode? What would you like them to know about the book going in? It's a very simple one. And that is, you know, we look around whenever we take on these books, it's, it's never just, oh, find something cool that happened in history and let's check it out. To me, it's, and Josh and I always spend so much time talking about this. What, what does this story tell us about today? And you have this moment in history where, and you'll see it weave throughout the entire book, um, where you have this egotistical leader who says that he can fix all the problems in the world, who uses people's fears, uses their economic disadvantages to his advantage, you know, promises them a better life as long as we can get rid of those people and we can be the rightful leaders because this is our rightful country. And you, I know you can very clearly tell I'm talking about Adolf Hitler, but my gosh, that sounds so familiar today, especially here in the United States. And for us, the reason why we tell this story, I mean, we are still in 2023, we're still fighting Nazis. We're still fighting authoritarianism. We're still fighting people who want to go after, quote unquote, those people and fighting anti-Semitism at rates that are unheard of. And to me, all these stories are not just, hey, here's something interesting about the Nazis you never knew. The reason we tell these stories is to remind you that these stories are repeating, you know, and, and someone, you know, it's attributed to Mark Twain, although he never said it, there's a history does not repeat, but it sure does rhyme. And my gosh, and the Nazi conspiracy it sure does rhyme, especially these days. And any closing thought from you, Josh? I just would echo exactly what Brad said. We didn't talk about it so much on in this conversation, but there were so many parallels between what we learned about then and today. And and really, uh, I mean, this is something that, of course, we've all learned before. We've all learned about the atrocities committed by Nazi Germany, unspeakable, unfathomable. But when you really spend some time living in that time period, you just see how close we were to a true global calamity and how frightening it was and how it started with just a political movement that, you know, is kind of familiar and that we see in different countries in the world today. And you just see how dangerous it is when that kind of intolerance uh, and that kind of hate-based ideology takes hold and and what the repercussions are and what the consequences are. And it's just powerful and it remains powerful today and it remains frightening today. And so, it affected both of us, I think, to to live there and to learn more about it and to think about the the parallels to today. And uh, it's haunting. As much as we we love telling this story, I think we also uh, both came out of it a little bit shaken up. So, you know, perhaps some readers will feel that way. But uh, it, it was it was it was quite a journey. Well, whether our readers want to check it out for those parallels or for the sort of rollicking timeline that takes us up to this possible assassination attempt and the contested legacy as well. It's a real web of intrigue and I've really enjoyed uh, hearing about it today. For our listeners, uh, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill is out now. Uh, and thank you so much to you both, Brad and Josh, for talking to, it, talking to me about it today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch. Their book, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill, is out now published by Flatiron Books. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.